Well, Exodus chapter 20, and really we're looking at 21 through 24, but I kind of want to go back into 20 and, and, and highlight some things there. Um, we're going to read it together here in just, just a moment, but we're dealing with a section of Exodus that, that talks about the book of the covenant. And for those of you who are newer to our church, what we're doing right now is we are walking through the Pentateuch. We're walking through the first five books of the Bible, and there's just a lot here. We are not going to be able to uh, touch on every verse in the depth that we would like. And so what we're trying to do now is just kind of help us understand some of the big themes of this section of Scripture. And as we look at these chapters, we're dealing with the Ten Commandments and this Book of the Covenant that Moses and the people uh, look at together with God and this covenant that they ratify with God. And we're asking ourselves, okay, as New Testament believers, as New Covenant believers, how do these laws apply to us? And what I'm trying to do this morning, maybe it's, maybe it's a little bit ambitious, but what I, I want us to do this morning is I want to look at the big picture of what's taking place in these chapters, kind of get a, a big understanding of, of what's happening. In other words, uh, chapter 22, verse 10, if a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or ox or a sheep or any beast to keep it safe and it dies or is injured, that, that law doesn't occur just by itself. It occurs in a context. And sometimes as we read this section of Scripture, we can read one verse, but I don't know what this means. So I want us to, to get a, a, an understanding of the big picture, what's, what's taking place in these chapters. And then, after we've looked at the, the big picture of what's taking place in chapters 20, 21 through 24, after we've done that, then I want us to spend some time just talking about some principles. What are some principles from these various sections dealing with laws and judgments and God's people's response to these laws and judgments? What are some big principles that can help those of us who are part of the new covenant understand God and how we're to live in obedience to him? So that's, that's what we're trying to do this morning. Again, maybe it's a little bit ambitious. We won't get through all the principles, I'm sure, but we'll uh, at least say them, and so you can kind of go back and look at them later as you look at the, the text. But it begins kind of in 20 with the Ten Commandments, and then you can kind of turn your Bibles with me as I talk here. It comes into chapter 21 as we begin to see some specific laws based upon the Ten Commandments. And then uh, that continues through chapter 22, then into chapter 23. And I'm going to read a little bit of chapter 23 and then chapter 24. And so if you would, if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God, as we read his word together, and if you need to sit down, you certainly may. But after he's given these laws and these rules, we come into chapter 23, and we come to verse 20, and we read this. Again, the laws have just been given, these rules. Behold, God says, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way, and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him. Obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemy and an adversary to your adversaries. Then we come down to chapter 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and All the people answered with one voice and said, All the words 
that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men to the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for cleanness, clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment and which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the, the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading, teaching, of his word this morning. And Father, as Dave has prayed, we, we do ask this morning for your, your word to be effective in our lives. We pray for our hearts to be soft. I pray that uh, you would help me to communicate uh, these, these words of yours clearly and truthfully. Lord, there's, there's some deep things here, some, some things that are separated from us by thousands of years, and so it's, it's difficult for us to understand some of the cultural things that are taking place here. Please be gracious to us and help us understand these things. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, for your glory. Amen. A few years ago, there was a news story about a couple who was living in Rhode Island. A news story that, that really illustrates how difficult it is sometimes for people to live with one another in peace. Uh, This news story told of this Rhode Island couple, their names were Craig and Kathleen, and they were struggling with their neighbors. In fact, struggling is is probably too nice of a word. For, For reasons that aren't quite clear, these neighbors were extremely agitated with Craig and Kathleen, and they began to harass them. They took a, an air pellet gun and shot up their car, and then a few days later shot up their house and their windows. And Craig and Kathleen were perplexed by their, their strange behavior. Their, their neighbors took their cat and tra- trapped it in a, a hot car on a warm day, and Craig and Kathleen were kind of just, just perplexed by their behavior. They, they called the police. The police came out and talked to the neighbors and issued a restraining order, but these neighbors were creative. They had a parrot, 
And they, they trained their parrot to shout obscenities at Craig and Kathleen, unique obscenities for each one of them. And so uh, Craig would be out with his, his friends in the yard, and this, this parrot would just begin to scream these, uh, these, these words at, at Craig. And then Kathleen, whenever she'd walk in and out of the house, the, the parrot would, would scream at her, and eventually got to where the, the parrot was just screaming 18 hours a day. And Craig and Kathleen, again, called the police and and the police come out again, and they, they talk to the neighbors, but they realize they, they couldn't technically issue a citation to them because it was actually the bird that was using the, um, the foul language. Um, this, yeah. um, so they, they had this problem with these, these, uh, these neighbors. They got more and more creative, and as the neighbors uh, continued to harass them, eventually Craig and Kathleen decided to, they had to leave this neighborhood. They tried to sell their house, but the harassment continued. Then the neighbors began to, to, to just kind of shout things at people who were visiting the house. They, they painted a, a giant, ugly picture of a bird on their own house to discourage neighbors from visiting there. It was ugly, right? It was ugly, and Craig and Kathleen were at a loss. There weren't enough laws to pass to cause their neighbors to like them. This past week, as I looked at various stories, there, there, there are websites after websites dedicated to stories of, of, of people who can't get along, people who can't live in community together, stories about homeowners associations and, and oppressive rules passed to, to target one family who's not living well with everybody else, just story after story of people who can't get along together. And, and sadly, it's, it's not just people out there who can't live with one another, right? It's also those who are part of of the community of faith. It's also you and me who struggle to live in community with one another. And I think there are a variety of reasons for that, right? Our hearts are hard. We're naturally very selfish people. And sometimes in my selfishness, as I enter a disagreement with another believer, someone that I know loves God and I love God, is as I, even though we both love God because of our, our, our selfishness, as we enter into this disagreement, it's hard for us to even perceive how the other person can think that they're right. And even when we might agree that, that we're in the wrong and they're right, We have a disagreement about how serious an offense it is, or we have a disagreement about what I should do in order to make it right with them. I know some of you have been in this situation, and and I've been in this situation where you are, are trying to sell your house and buy another house. And what's funny is, as you try to sell your house, the person who's buying your house is being so unreasonable. They're so unreasonable because they, they see these flaws in your house and, and they think that you should do this, this, and this. And it's just a very, they're a very unreasonable person, the person you're trying to sell your house to. And then, strangely enough, the person you're trying to buy your house from is also unreasonable because they won't see all these repairs that you want them to do to their house and they don't understand how important it is that they do these things. Because of our natural selfishness, it's hard for us to live in a relationship with one another, even when we want to. It's hard for us to understand conflict rightly. It's hard for us to to assess damages that are done in a relationship. It's hard for us to assess blame. That's a problem that we have. And it's not a problem that rules or laws alone can fix. 
In this text that we're looking at this, this morning, the, these, these chapters, what we're seeing is, is we're looking at, at people that God is calling to, to govern themselves with a desire to treat one another sacrificially. These, these chapters that we're looking at, chapters 21 through 24, are really tied back to chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments and the Ten Words that we see there. And as we go through these chapters, what we're going to see is that these laws that God gives are not meant to be an exhaustive list of every situation that a person could ever find themselves in. In other words, these these laws don't cover every situation that a person might encounter as they live life in this land that God is calling them to live. What these laws and these rules are to do is there to be kind of a, a general guideline, a model for how to treat one another. They provide a check they provide a restraint on the powerful. They, re, they provide a restraint on those who would want to harm other people. And they also kind of serve as a model for those who do desire honestly before God to love each other. So here's, here's what we're going to see as we go through this, this passage. As we go through this passage, we're going to see that, that in Christ, for those of us who are in Christ, we want to love one another as we live with one another. For those of us who are in Christ, we want to love one another as we live with one another. And as we look at these chapters, we're going to gain some understanding about how we do that. As we live this covenant life together, we recognize that there is a temptation we face a temptation to live selfish, selfishly instead of sacrificially. And so these chapters are going to help us. So again, here's what I'm going to do. We're going to look at the, the big picture. We're going to try to understand what's going on in this section we call the Book of the Covenant. And, and then after we do that, we're going to look at some principles. So here we are, the Book of the Covenant, where first of all we see the Ten Commandments. Those were in chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. We've talked about that already. Then we see, uh, next, some, some worship instructions. And you can kind of turn around in, in the passages with me if you want or scroll through on your digital device. But there in the end of chapter 20, there are some worship instructions, some instructions about how to build these altars. And these are probably altars that they use to ratify the covenant in chapter 24. And then after the worship instruction, we have rules. And we have quite a few different rules given. And as you read these rules, you'll see that there are some different ways that these rules or judgments or statutes are presented. Sometimes there's, there are rules that kind of use an if-then statement, kind of case laws, or they're called causistic laws. And so, for example, if your slave does this, then this. If your master does this, then this. If a thief does this, then you do this to him. If a, if a person strikes a person with this, then you shall do this. If the person gets better, you do this. If the person dies, you do this. If, then, if, then. There's lots of different examples of these, these case laws. And so, they're, again, not providing a, a a description for every encounter that a person could have in life, but they are providing a, a broad model for how you live with one another. And so you, you see some of those rules. You also just see some, some statements. Don't do this. Don't do that. Worship God. Don't worship false gods. Just some very straight instructions. Now, 
these categories aren't hard and fast, but you see several different kind of maybe main sections of rules. You see some rules regarding slaves at the beginning of chapter 21. You see some rules regarding injuries and, and how to practice justice in chapter 21, 12 through 32. You see some rules regarding property and, and how to make restitution when you damage someone else's property. You see some rules regarding social justice beginning in chapter 22, verse 16. You see some rules regarding the festivals in chapter 23, verse 10 through verse 19. And again, these aren't hard and fast categories, but as you, you read through this section of Scripture, you're going to see these, these rules kind of presenting themselves. And then what do we see next? Then we see the description of the conquering angel and conquest. That's in chapter 23, verses 20 through 33. Then God talks about that after giving these rules. We read that together, parts of it. And then in chapter 24, we have the the confirmation of the covenant. The people saying, okay, these rules that God has given us, we're going to live in obedience to. Now, as you see that big picture, I hope that helps you as, first of all, just as you read the Bible on your own, because sometimes you can be reading through your Bible and you're in Exodus, and you're in Exodus chapter uh, 23, and, and you come to verse 19, and it says, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. You think, I have no idea what to do with this verse. Now now you see, okay, this, this is occurring in a context. There's this overall thing that God is trying to communicate to his people. This whole section of scripture we see in chapter 24 is called the, the book of the covenant. There's the Ten Commandments given, and all these rules, and so that's, that's what's happening here. The other thing is you think about the, the big picture, and this, I think this is very important. I want you to notice what's, what's on the bookends, what, what's on either side of, of what's happening here. It, it begins and it ends with worship. It begins by talking about here, here are the altars and here's how we're going to worship God and here's how... This, this is to take place. And then he gives these rules, and then the covenant is ratified, and, and there's worship. It begins and it ends with worship. The rules don't exist for the rules' sake, but the rules are things that people who love God are going to use in order to pursue God in obedience to him. It's also important to notice what it says here about this, this angel of the Lord. We'll talk more about that in, in coming weeks, but this isn't, these aren't rules that they follow just in their own strength, but there's a an ability that they're given by God to walk in obedience to God and love him. So let's look at some principles for our covenant life together. And again, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of look at these, these principles based upon the, the section of Scripture. And then after we look at the principle, we're going to say, okay, how, how do we, who are new covenant believers, people who aren't living at this time, but who are living life in Christ, how should we approach this section of Scripture. Some principles that help us do this. Principles to help us love one another as we live with one another. Here's here's a first principle. God's people, God's people pursue fairness in a flawed world. God's people pursue fairness in a flawed world. Turn to chapter 21, where chapter 20 deals with the Ten Commandments, and then the rules begin in Chapter 21, verse 1, here are the rules, the judgments that you shall set before them. And then he begins by talking about slavery. And for those of us who are in the 21st century culture, coming back and looking at the Old Testament, one of the hardest questions that we have to ask ourselves and that others will ask ourselves is, well, how do you, how do you handle what the Bible seems to teach about slavery? 
A couple things to, to think about slavery in this culture. First of all, we know that slavery was practiced everywhere in the ancient world. And there were a variety of ways by which a person could become a slave. You could become a slave through being conquered. So, you know, this guy is, is fighting with, with this guy, and they, they fight each other, and then the, the people who have been defeated, they become slaves. They become forced labor. You could become forced labor by being kidnapped or, or sold into slavery. So remember Joseph in the book of Genesis, that's what happens to him. He's, he's sold into slavery. These people take him to Egypt, and now he's in this new culture. He has no ability to exist in and of himself, and so he's, there's no place for him to go. He, he becomes a, 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 a slave in this other culture. That was another way that a person could become a slave. You could also become a slave by, by selling yourself into slavery. You're, you're at a, an economic disadvantage, and you, you need someone to, to provide for you, and so you, you sell yourself to slavery. And not only were there a variety of ways by which you be, could become a slave, there were a variety of conditions in which a person could be in as a slave. And sometimes a person would be in, in very good conditions as a slave. You, you think about uh, Abraham's servants and, and how they responded to him and, and how you know, Eliezer loved by Abraham. You think about Joseph and at, at first how, how well he had things there in, in Potiphar's house. You think about um, other slaves as we think about this, and we'll talk more about that as, as we go on, but uh, other slaves had it very bad, right? You think about the, uh, the Israelites in Egypt after several hundred years and how the Egyptians turn, the, the slavery becomes harsh and cruel, oppressive. Now, everywhere around the Israelites, slavery is practiced. This, this forced slavery, indentured servitude, all, all sorts of different types of slavery are practiced. And here's what I want you to see in these verses about this system and how the Israelites were to respond to it. First of all, as we look at these verses, what we see is that forced labor is forbidden. In other words, you, you can't take a fellow Hebrew and, and force him to become slavery. Forced slavery is forbidden. It says in verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So that type of slavery is, is forbidden. Instead, the type of slavery that's envisioned here is a, a type of slavery that was based upon financial hardship. For a, a fee and for a period of time, a person would serve another person. And again, it's very hard for us, I think, in the 21st century to, to put ourselves back in that, that 1400 BC, 1450 BC, and understand exactly what's taking place here. Remember, at this time, there are no banks. There are no IRA, retirement funds, there are very limited means that a person has to protect him or herself against financial catastrophe. And so slavery, or indentured service, was a means by which a person who found him or herself in a a time of of economic hardship could, could place themselves in the protection of another person to be provided for. Remember in the story of Joseph, at, at kind of at the end of the book of Genesis, there's that scene where Joseph has all the food and the people of Egypt are starving and they, they want to be sold into slavery so that Pharaoh will have a societal obligation to care for them. So, they, so Pharaoh takes them on as his slaves. All the people of Egypt become his slaves, his servants, and they're, and they're grateful to him because now he has a, a social obligation to care for them. 
Another thing we see here as we look at what's described and envisioned for the Israelite as they exist in this society in which slavery takes place, the other thing that we see is that this, this envisions, this law that God is giving them here, envisions a system in which people are treated well enough that they may decide to preserve the physical security that slavery provides and, and stay in that relationship. In other words, they envision here a system where a person might say, you know what, uh, this is verse 5, a slave says, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to leave. I'm going to stay here. And that was the type of relationship that God was calling people to practice, a practice in which the people were treated well. This isn't, in fact, as you look at these 11 verses and you go on and you continue to read the rest of Exodus, you read Leviticus, this isn't a system, and the laws aren't given here to oppress the weak, but, but the laws here are given to restrain the powerful. The focus here is on the dignity of the slave, that the slave cannot be abused. Now, there are certainly some things that trouble us as we read through this, and we think, okay, why 30 shekels? You know, he talks, um, talks later about the, the 30 shekels paid to a, um, uh, verse 32, uh, to the owner of a slave. You know, why that? Why not the death penalty here? Why there? But, but the bottom line is this. I'm not sure, but I, I think here the focus is on, within this culture, making sure that the laws communicate the worth that people have. These regulations, this is, this is the thing that is absolutely clear, even though I don't understand all the specifics sometimes, what's absolutely clear is this. These laws, these rules, would have communicated something very powerful in the ancient world. They would have communicated the reality that slaves have worth and dignity. And I think the summary of what I would say about this section is, Within a system in which economic necessity, necessity required indentured service, God restricts the abuses and calls his people to treat others well. So, what do we get from this? How does this apply to us? What's God's heart for his people? What, what I think is, is this. God's people are never to participate in a, in a flawed, fallen world in such a way that they harm or exploit others. God's people are never to participate in a, a fallen world in such a way that they harm or exploit others. It's hard to focus here on what the the text is focusing on, but the main point of the text is is about how God's people are, are to treat others. Theologically, he calls them to remember that they were slaves and to treat others the way that they would have wanted to be treated. Now, you say, well, why doesn't God just abolish slavery? And, and here, here's what I'd, I'd say. As, as we look at the totality of, of the Old Testament and the New Testament, what we see is that God seems to be less concerned with correcting every societal abuse, and he seems more concerned that his people operate in a godly way within a flawed system. 
In other words, as you go through the Old Testament and New Testament, never do you see God just, just getting, uh, addressing every possible abuse of a society, but he's mainly concerned that his people who exist within a flawed culture live rightly. For example, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, look, um, let, let each person lead the life that God has assigned to him. You're, and he kind of gives several examples, and one of the examples he gives is slavery. He's, look, were you, were you a bondservant when called? Don't worry about it. This is verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 7. But if you can gain your freedom, do it, right? Avail yourself of the opportunity. For he, and then he, and then he goes big picture. He says, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Paul is saying, look, sometimes, um, you know, of, of course if you can become free, do it. But there's a, a bigger picture that you need to understand. And sometimes we can become so distracted by perceived abuses against our rights that we're failing to understand our purpose as bondservants of the Lord. Ultimately, free, slave, poor, rich, we belong to the Lord and our lives are controlled by him. It's a hard truth to accept, but we should be much more concerned that we live in a world where Christ is not recognized as king than we are that some of our rights are not recognized. God's call on his people is for us to recognize our obligation to those who are beneath us in whatever capacity and in Christ to serve and respect them. If you're a boss, if you're a parent, an upperclassman in high school, your obligation by God is to treat others with dignity and respect, to care for them sacrificially. Here's a second principle. God's people seek justice and not revenge. God's people seek justice and not revenge. You look at chapter 21 of, of Exodus, and you, look, you begin there in verse 12, and there follow a series of rules and regulations dealing with, with uh, what, what you do in a certain situation. So if this happens, then this is to be the resulting punishment. And you go through those, and again, what we see as we look through these is a restraint on retaliation. When someone has wronged us, our temptation is to believe that that wrong is so severe that, they're, they're, um, that justice requires a severe response. You think of the, the story Odysseus, from the story of Odysseus, and at the end of the story of Odysseus, you've been reading through this, this whole play, you hear the story of, of Odysseus, or the whole uh, epic, and you, you see Odysseus, and you see these terrible suitors who have taken over his home, and Odysseus comes home, and you think, okay, good, Odysseus is going to deal with these suitors who have taken advantage of his wife and his uh, son, and imposed on their hospitality, and so you're excited to see Odysseus kind of give them a, a firm talking to, and then there's that scene where he kills a hundred of them, and you're like, Okay, that seems a little excessive. This, what we see here is, is our natural human tendency is to believe that, that just, is to confuse justice with revenge. So, for example, 
There's, there's constraints, restraints put here. Look, look at verse 12. It says, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. So if you, you kill a person, that there's the death penalty. But at the same time, there's restraint. Verse 18 says, When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. In other words, he doesn't die because of that. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. So you can imagine being there, uh, an Israelite, and there's this guy, and you're arguing. All of a sudden, he picks up this rock, and he strikes you with it, and you're, you're in bed for a couple of days, and you're injured, and you can't work. And then you, you get up out of bed, and you're saying, you know what I think this guy needs? Guys, I'm just going to be honest with you. I think this guy needs a death penalty, right? And so what do we see here? These, these laws are, are, are providing restraint Ultimately, I think the point here, God's heart for his people is God wants his people to be merciful in their justice. He wants his people to be merciful. Psalm Psalm 103 says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Listen to this. God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. What we see here in these laws dealing with these if-then statements is that God's people are, are to be passionate about justice. There is to be punishment. And yet at the same time, there is to be Restraint, not revenge. And even as we see God interacting here with people, we see that the call is, is founded on this idea of a relational obligation and, and mercy. Now, what had happened? This section that we're looking at right now also has the, the eye for the eye passage in Exodus 21, verse 26. It says, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall, uh, sorry, uh, I'm sorry, verse 24, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So th- that's the, the eye for the eye passage, right? And what happened is, instead of understanding this was a restraint, saying, hey, if someone takes your eye, you can't chop off their hand, you can't chop off their head, you've you got to restrain yourself. There's, there's mercy as, as someone has wronged us. People had twisted that, say, you know, you damaged me, now it's my turn to get to damage you. Jesus corrects that understanding in Matthew chapter 5. Look, you've heard it said eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. In other words, this, this eye for eye has been twisted. It talks about mercy. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy, is what has been said. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Now, how do we apply that? For today, how do we know? How do we know if we're seeking justice and not revenge? As a believer, here's this person who's wronged us. Right? They've wronged us wrong. They've wronged us. And in our mind, we think, you know what? The right thing to happen would be some really bad things for this person. I'm not saying I want revenge. I'm just saying. I want justice. Now, isn't it a good thing for justice to prevail? 
Isn't there something that I think God has given us? I want want justice. I want righteousness to reign. Here's a heart test. Here's a heart test for us. Absolutely, we should want justice. But here's, here's the justice that the believer has received and the believer should want others to receive. The justice that you and I have received is that a gracious God has dealt utterly and completely and justly with our sin by taking it on himself and offering mercy and grace and forgiveness to us. And so now, as a person wrongs me, is my desire to see them suffer, is my desire to, to make them feel the full consequence of what they've done. And it could be in, in big situations, you know, maybe a person in the church wrongs us and we want everyone to recognize how wrong they were. Maybe it can be kind of just in, in small situations. You know, we've gotten in an argument with our sibling and we think, you know what, they need, they, they need to apologize to me. I'm going to kind of make them suffer a little bit until they're, they're understanding how bad what they've done is. Or our spouse, you know, I want my, I want my spouse to, to recognize the, the, the full wrongness of what he or she has done. That's not the heart of the Lord. That's not the heart of justice. It's not the heart of the justice that we have received. God calls us in Christ to love others. How do we do that? By practicing justice as we've received it, not revenge. We want God to pay the sins that others have committed against us so they can experience his forgiveness and he can be glorified. Here's a third principle. God's people demonstrate repentance through restitution. God's people demonstrate repentance through restitution. As you go beginning kind of at the end of chapter 21, you see all these different rules and regulations about what sort of restitution a person should receive when someone has wronged them. So, for example, uh, verse 33, you have this man opens a pit, a man digs a pit, doesn't cover it, an ox and donkey falls into it. The owner of the pit shall make restoration, restitution. He shall give money to its owner. The dead beast shall be his. So there's, there's again, this, this restraint whenever people have been wronged. Or you come to chapter 22, and it talks about a thief. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt on him. But if the sun is risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Again, what do we see here? We see limitations on, on liability. Now, how much better is this system than, than a system in which a person is just kind of thrown into a, a cage and not able to pay back? The person here makes restitution. He doesn't just sit in a jail cell. He, he pays back what he owes. And at the same time, again, there's, there's limitations on liability. You don't say this person uh, dug a pit, didn't cover it up, animal fell in, therefore I get his house, you know. There's limitations. There's, there's fairness. It helps those people who truly want to live in relationship with one another know what's fair, what's right. The other beautiful thing about this, this system that God provides here for his people is that it provides opportunity for repentance through restitution. 
In other words, let's say that I've, I've wronged you and I, I recognize that I've wronged you and, and, I, and I, want to, I want to do right by you. It, now I have an opportunity. There, there's a, a cultural provision by which I can make restitution. I knew a man several years ago who was convicted for stealing several hundred thousands of dollars. I went to go visit him in, in prison and, and uh, he, he told me, he says, you know, that it's, it's just so frustrating, you know. He knew what he had done was, was wrong. He said, it's, it's so frustrating because I don't have the opportunity to make it right right now. It took him several years before he was able to get out of prison. And then once he got out of prison, he began that process of, of restoration, restitution, trying to, to pay back those that he'd wronged. I think Zacchaeus in Luke 19 wanted to restore fourfold. Now, Oftentimes, in our culture today, this idea isn't even really thought about, right? But if you've wronged someone, there's been damages that you've done to others, and we want to live rightly in relationship with one another, I think there should be an eagerness on our part to, to provide restitution to those that we've wronged. Second Corinthians 7, Paul's talking about the Corinthians and how they'd wronged him. He goes, you know, one of the things that encouraged me was how eager you were to clear yourselves, the eagerness to, to pay back. And for those of us who have been transformed by the gospel, who've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, and now we're living in covenant relationship with one another, as we wrong one another, there should be an, an eagerness on our part to, to make right what we've wronged by God's grace. God wants his people to be gracious when wronged. We don't demand that people make restitution that, that's unreasonable. We, we don't even demand restitution. We, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talks about, we, you know, I'd rather be wronged than take another believer to court. Yeah, the same, so we're gracious when wronged, and yet we're generous when we've wronged others. It's a beautiful thing we see as we come to the Old Testament law. Number four, fourth principle. Again, I told you we wouldn't get through all these, but just kinda, I want to just kind of touch on these last three Number four, we see that God's people care for the disenfranchised. Now, the, the disenfranchised we see in these, in these verses, chapter 22, verse 16, all the way into chapter 9 and scattered throughout. We see these are they're, they're the sojourn, the person who comes from a different land and lives among the people, the foreigner. We see the, the widow, the orphan. We see the, uh, the impoverished. These are all people who are outside of the power structure. And God says that he is passionate that they care for these people. He executes justice for the fatherless, we see in Deuteronomy 10, verse 18. Proverbs 23 says, Don't move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong, and he will plead their cause against you. God's people care for the disenfranchised because God is passionately aware of the plight of those who are outside the power structures of a society, the widow, the orphan, the poor, the person who comes from a different culture. God is passionately for them, and those who oppose them oppose God. God calls us to be sensitive to the needs of those who are weak among us. Why does he do that? Isaiah 61 talks about the worship of the impoverished. The the poor become worshipers of God and display his glory in a unique way. Those of us who are God's people should have a heart, a love for the powerless. Fifth principle 
God's people worship him with joy and with his people. You come into chapter 23, verse 10, describes here the, the, the process of, of, of worshiping through the Sabbath and the festivals, and we're going to talk more about that in a few months. But, but as, as we look, or weeks maybe, months? Uh, as, as we look at, at this section, we, we see this, this worship that the people are to engage in. God wants his people to have obedience, again, that's characterized by worship. In other words, these rules don't exist for the sake of the rules alone. These rules are outflowing of people who are engaged in worship of God. Sixth principle, God's people obey by God's enabling presence. The obedience that God calls for is impossible apart from God. As we come to chapter 23, it describes God's in dwelling presence, it says, my name is in him, in this, in this angel. And perhaps there he's, he's referring to the second person of the Godhead, God the Son. Obey his voice carefully, it says in verse 22. He's going to go before you. I'm going to be with you. God's heart for his people is to be obedient. But not an obedient based upon their own works, but an obedience based upon the Lord. Now, as we come to this section of Scripture... We see the people ratify the covenant. Chapter 24, they, they agree to live this, this way. These rules are not tools that create a changed heart, but they help those who have a changed heart, who want to be obedient to God, understand how to do so. You and I want to love one another. We want to live in right relationship with, you, with one another. I, I want to love you. I want to, to do right by you. As we come to the Old Covenant, we see God's heart for his people to be transformed by his work and live with grace and love and truth with one another. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for this this section of Scripture. There is just so much here, so many verses here describing your will for your people. And, And we recognize your character doesn't change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We pray that by your enabling work in our lives, we'd have the ability to love one another and live with one another in love. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.